This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Uh, rumor has it that uh, Aaron Vogel showed up uh, for the students yesterday, and uh, I came in and patted someone on the shoulder this morning, like, ah, ah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, by the way, that's a good sign, because there's a lot of you that didn't raise your hand. I'm a little disappointed. Uh, you're not exercising, maybe, like you should be. There's something about uh, that that discomfort of muscular exercise, not only in the doing of it, but in the follow-up. Some of us dread it so much that we would rather just not even think of getting in shape. And yet there's a spiritual principle woven into that, that if we are willing to recognize that pain is a good pain, that those trials, muscular trials in this case, but life trials actually produce a greater strength in us, then we face it different. Uh, you know, Leslie and I were talking about health last night. It was our date night. And she used a term, uh, optim- optimal performance. Like if there was something in our bodies could be functioning at a higher level so that we'd be sharper. And she made comment, just to sort of bring me into the discussion, you could preach more clearly, you know, whatever it is. And so I'm like, huh, listening. Uh, but the point is, what would we be willing to do or, in this case, give up? In other words sort of the topic came up about my root beer, and I like root beer. I don't even drink it that much, but I really like root beer. And if I knew that in giving up my root beer, I could gain a level of clarity and strength in my life, would I be willing to do it? But that's my root beer. That's part of my comfort. That's, that's just part of my life, right? But it's in exchange for something better. And so much of the Christian life is lived in the lower regions of self-comfort And we always are struggling. We're like, why doesn't my Christian life ever grow out of this? And mainly it's because we're not willing to throw off weights that beset us. We're not really willing to exercise what we do know. I guarantee you in a group this size, there's a lot of us that know what we ought to be doing physically in our body. And we would be sharper. We would be stronger. We would have more energy. And yet we don't have time for it. The same is true with our spiritual life. Many of us in here, if there's a group on earth that does know what they should be doing to truly be strong spiritually, and yet why is it that we oftentimes have the same excuses? We have one life to live, and I just want to encourage all of us to live it well, to live it with gusto. We'll use the term optimal performance. There is an optimal spiritual performance that very few of us are after right now. Because we're like, we're better than everyone around us. We're stronger. We're spiritually more sharp. We think about the Bible more than they do. And we heed the Holy Spirit more than they do. And yet, what if there was a degree of givenness to Jesus that was beyond? And you knew that there was a greater measure of strength you could walk in in your life. What would you be willing to do to get it? Uh, So I'm just going on record as we begin to say, 
I really take that seriously in my own life. And I recognize the same drag on my life that takes me down. The same little small justifications. Well, you know, I want the full measure of Jesus Christ. This is, uh, again, an unusual message. I think I'm three in a row uh, on the Civil War. I'm not exact. I used to teach. I don't know how many of you know this. I used to teach the Civil War. So maybe that's what's going on. Something, you know, something can trigger in your life and all sorts of past memories just start, start flooding back. Uh, I, I don't know if I said this to this group or there was some group I was talking to about uh, sneaking through my parents' uh, bathroom and I, I found my old cologne from junior high and then took the cap off. I was like, oh, yeah. took the cap off and I went back into junior high. I mean, it was, and I like put the cap back on real quick. I was like, whoa, never smell that one again. <laughs> and there's certain things that can trigger, uh, and I have a whole depository of Civil War understanding that I don't even know I have because I don't think about the Civil War that much. But something that I've been going through, I don't have a clue why this happens sometimes, but I think it's my meditation on this country because I used to teach constitutional law and I used to teach the Civil War. And the Civil War represents the first great test to this country. And where literally we split in half that people that were close friends were matched up to kill each other over issues of governmental rule and persuasion and perspective and philosophy of how a nation should be run. And I see such a similar thing taking place in our nation that I guess maybe it's causing me to hearken back and to remember all these times that I, that I, I processed through. Because I, I remember trying to get in the shoes of the North and the Union. And I, w- I would try and say, okay, if I was uh, an abolitionist or I was a Republican, what would I view this as? And if I was a Southerner, if I was a plantation owner, how would I view this? And it's interesting because I can very easily get in the shoes of the Southern plantation owner. I can, constitutionally. Because the union seemed to be encroaching upon their rights as a state to make decisions on their own for how they should rule their state. And constitutionally, I'd be supportive of that. However, I can also get inside the abolitionist's shoes and say, but something is wrong. What if I get inside the slave's shoes? Something is wrong. And so this whole issue has a lot of emotion to it, but we have, it's so clouded with liberalism today, that it's, it's hard for us sometimes as conservative Christians to go back in time and see some of the civil rights issues with a clear lens. And yet, that's sort of what I want to do today, is I'd like to approach something, but this is not going to be what you think. It's not a teaching on the Civil War at all, any more than Wilmer McLean's living room was a teaching on the Civil, civil War. It's a teaching on the, on the Christian life. But from an unusual vantage point, there's a character in American history that likely you've heard of, but the name is so generic that you might not even realize you know who it is. In other words, John Brown? Um, Okay, couldn't the guy have a little more flavoring to his name? That's the most basic, boring name I've probably ever heard. And yet he actually plays one of the most important roles in American history to define where we're even at today. And, however, it wasn't necessarily the life he lived. It was the fact that he died the death he died. And that sort of triggered an awakening in our country, which actually spawned what we know as the Civil War. It's also known as the war between the states. And the beginnings of that started with, in a sense, this guy's death. 
And what you're going to find in your life is that for there finally to be a coming to terms, a breaking through unto clarity on the issues in your life, sometimes it starts with the death of a John. Okay, and that's uh, just like, you know, I'm going to hint at something, but John the Baptist, when he was arrested and imprisoned, actually it triggered something in Jesus' ministry. And what John the Baptist represents is what we call a first. When we're training and discipling here at Ellerslie, we always say there's a first and there's a second. Some of you have heard me say that so much, you could walk to the side of the stage. You always know this is the side, first and second. And the first cannot please God. The first is unable to bring about salvation. So the first is Adam, for instance. The second is Jesus. And when all of us are born, we're born in Adam, and we're born as a descendant of his frailty. And in and of himself, he cannot save himself or anyone else. So to find salvation, we must repent and put off our old, our first, and believe and enter into the work of the second. It's only the second that can save. John Brown is a classic illustration of a first. What he did miserably failed. And yet, in so doing, in coming to the end of John Brown, something actually began that did, in fact, rescue the slaves. That was his whole intent. He wanted to rescue the slaves. He wanted to see them free. And yet, in and of himself, he was a miserable failure. So people don't even know if to call him a hero or a joke. And that's what's so interesting about this message. I'm gonna, the subtitle I have is A Study in the Exchange of Noble Motives for Noble Behavior. The ideological split. The issue? Slavery. So I'm sure you have an opinion on slavery, it's pretty easy to see clearly as a Christian now on the issues. I mean, it would be really awkward if one of you said, I just think it's great to treat uh, another human as property and then to beat them and do whatever you want because they belong to you. You see, there's something just inherently wrong with that. Now, that's not everyone's perspective on slavery. There were some healthy uh, slaveholders back in the day that were very strong Christians, and they, they had slaves, and they were their property, but they treated them with dignity and love. They read the book of Philemon, and they understood that there's a way in which you can treat a slave. However, they still had slaves. And so for all of us in here, there, there could be differing views and different gradients of antipathy towards the idea of slavery. But probably most of us, if not all of us, are against it. And we have no interest in bringing it back, right? Well, back in that day, there were three competing views. The southern plantation owners, as, as the nation was about to expand, I think around 33 states at the time of the Civil War uh, in this country. Of course, we have 50 now. And so we still had 17 states to come. And the battle wasn't necessarily over if the southern plantation owners could have slaves. That actually wasn't the main issue in the country at the time. It was if the new, the new states coming into the Union would be slave states or free states. That was the big issue. And so Kansas came along, and known as Bloody Kansas, this was a big deal back then. When Kansas uh, was put on the docket as the next state, then the big decision was, should it be a free state or should it be a slave state? And the southern uh, states wanted to continue because to, you have to realize this is a representative government. 
And if Kansas becomes a free state, what's that going to do in the voting back in Washington? It's going to put more weight on the free, and it will cause a discrimination against those that hold slaves. So the southern plantation owners need to do something. They need to get Kansas. Because then they have representation in the Senate and the House of Representatives to vote on behalf of protecting their rights. So they send up their militia to Kansas, and then what do you think the abolitionists do? They send their guys out there. You have war in Kansas. This isn't even the Civil War. This is just war. And it is all-out war, and it's ideological war. You have to gain this state. So the southern plantation owners, even though their base root thinking might not be, we love slavery... They functioned off of slavery. Their entire economic system functioned off it. All cotton, which was their main industry, needed slaves. And so as a result, if you remove slaves from the South, they collapse economically. It's just a fact. They know that. And so they're telling the northern states, don't take this away from us. But it wasn't necessarily just a moral issue. It was also an economic issue for them. And so they want to expand it. The Republican platform, for instance, most of you in here think of uh, Abraham Lincoln as being anti-slavery. Well, he wasn't pro-slavery, but what he was, was he was against the future states in this country being slave states. That was his platform. He was not trying to abolish slavery in the South. And so this is what we can call the Republican platform. It's to restrain it. And so I want you to look at this in regards to your own life in regards to the things that hinder your forward movements. We could call it sin, right? It's an obvious sin. I mean, come on. What was going on in the South as far as treating these, these, uh, these men and women the way that they were being treated is just outrageously wrong. However, many of us, not many of us in this room, but many people in this world actually have a desire to expand the rule of sin in the flesh in this realm. I mean, look at Hollywood. Hollywood's entire aim seems to be to corrupt people. Don't you get that thought sometimes? It's like, what is the media doing? Do they actually think they're informing us or are they trying to trick us? What are they doing? How are they helping us? There's entire groups of people that want to expand ideas that are actually harmful to others. And then there are some, we could even call this the Republican platform, that want to restrain it, that want to put limits on it, that want to say, hey, we shouldn't have any more of that. But then there's another troop that want to remove it, the abolitionists. And these guys, depending on who you read in history, like which historian you read, either the absolute abolitionists are wild-eyed crazies or they're the most brilliant guys on earth. It's really interesting because the difference of opinions, like listen to the media today. You could listen to one guy and you'd think that our president is an idiot. And then you listen to the next guy and you're like, we've never had a president like this. It's so extreme Okay, at this time, uh, there was a, a, uh, an abolitionist senator that was beaten up by a southern uh, senator, and the union, you know, the, the abolitionists were just in outrage over this, you know, putting up posters all over the place, you know, to get this guy out of there. And the southern states were sending canes up to this guy. He got a whole bunch of canes just to replace the one he may have broken when he hit this guy over the head. It's so completely opposite in viewpoint that oftentimes you feel like, is there a right and is there a wrong? The abolitionists want to remove it. Now, if we were going to look at this, because I'm not going to try and take a political position on North-South in the war, because there's a lot of great men on both sides. However, there's still some obvious conclusions you can come to. And what I'm going to liken slavery to is something that is an obvious thing that needs to be removed. 
how it is removed. I mean, we can just mitigate against the power of sin in our life, or we can say, hey, guys, let's start getting aggressive about this. We cannot continue to live the way we're living. We cannot. And so this is the same dynamic they had in old America back in the 1860s. You have all of these extremes, and you have differing viewpoints. And if we were all voting people, we could all vote. Do we want to expand it? Uh, Do we want to just restrain it? Or do we want to remove it? And the remove it is always the wild-eyed kooks. These are the guys that get painted up, you know, with the... They have, like, a face like this on the front of the newspaper. And it's always, like, you know, the title underneath, the guy goes crazy. Uh, And so, in other words... The ones that actually believe that this should be obliterated usually come across as extremists. And that's one of the challenges we face even in our own life. Because there's a part of you that knows the media reports even in your own soul. Are you willing to stand up against that which is hindering your life, that which is destroying what God is intending to do, and just throw it off? Put it down. This is where John Brown comes in. Listen to John Brown. John Brown gets together with all these abolitionists. And he's heard them because he's been around them for decades. He made a vow that he would, in his lifetime he was going to see the end of slavery. This guy was determined to see this scourge end in our country. Passionate, zealous man. So here's what he says. He's listened to all these abolitionists. He's like, these men are all talk. What we need is action. Action. Don't just keep telling me that slavery's bad. Let's go do something about it. Can't you just feel it? And what do you think of a John Brown? I mean, I really struggle with knowing what I think of John Brown, to be honest. I mean, I've read a lot of different history reports about him, and my, I, I still sway back and forth between lunatic to, well, he has a point. Crazy. Uh, you know what? He's convicting me. And so I go back and forth. That's exactly what's happened throughout history with this guy. Introducing the Kansas kerfuffle. In 1854, it was officially open to settlement. Kansas is open. Now the battle begins. Is it going to be a free state or is it going to be a slave state? Interestingly enough, it ended up being a free state. How the abolitionists beat off the southern plantation owners, I'm not exactly sure, but they did. Now introducing John Brown. John Brown was a key participant in the abolitionist move to protect Kansas. In fact, he moved his family out there just to defend Kansas. This guy was a man of action. There's no doubt about it. Now, when it comes to our life, I want us to receive a little instruction from John Brown to the degree that we can. And that is that one thing you cannot say about John Brown is that he just sat on his uh, thumbs and didn't do anything. John Brown believed things and then acted. A lot of us believe things and don't act. And so a John Brown comes into the room and says, Hey, guys, you just all talk. What we need is action in your Christian life. He's got a point. He's got a point. He looks a little wild-eyed when he talks, but he's got a point. Introducing John Brown, a man determined to change things. There he is. This is for Hudson. Hudson likes me to stick pictures in my uh, thing. Now, John Brown, at the time of uh, the big incident before the Civil War, had gray hair and a long beard. So this is, you know about 14 or 15 years before that. So he ages uh, in our story. But this is back probably in the Kansas days, you know, where he's fighting in Kansas. So he's uh, just sort of a tough, rough-looking guy. I don't know that I want to mess with this guy. But he has a heart of great compassion. In fact, many of the black slaves in those days that were freed 
actually admitted that John Brown cared more about the African-American people than they, even, they did. That's what Jefferson Davis said. This guy had more love and compassion for my people than I think I even have. And that's quite a statement. In other words, these are men and women that gave their lives uh, to serve their own people. And this man, though he was a little rough around the edges, uh, gave his life to help them. So I'm going to read you a few quotes about of people's perspective on this man. He was a monomaniacal zealot, one of the most perceptive human beings of his generation. He killed slavery, sparked the Civil War, and seeded civil rights. An American who gave his life that millions of other Americans might be free. His actions were insane. I could go on and on. There are so many differing viewpoints on this man. You have to realize that President Lincoln had to make a choice here. Remember what he represented? He was the Republican platform. He was the one that needed the votes. He was the one that had to make sure that the nation, the South, realized he's not, he's not like John Brown. When he becomes president or as president, he's not going to behave that way. Okay, guys, I'm not against the South. I just don't want slavery to progress in this country. So you can keep your slaves. We're just not going to have Kansas have any of them or the other states. The noblest of motives, Harper's Ferry in 1859. The funny thing about uh, this man, you know, my first two kids are Hudson and Harper. And so this guy's from Hudson, Ohio. And then the big event in his life that he's known for is Harper's Ferry. So I feel like strangely connected with this guy, and I'm not sure that I want to be. <laughs> the noblest of motives, Harper's Ferry in 1859. This is not part of the Civil War, but this would be the event that almost every single person across the board that has ever studied the Civil War would say, sparked the Civil War. This is the event. So it's in 1859. The, the Civil War is going to start in uh, 19, 1861. So Brian Harris is speaking of the uh, Harper's Ferry. He says, whatever view you take of the consequences of Harper's Ferry, and for all that it was a botched job which resulted in the unnecessary deaths of innocents, it had at least the merit of having been undertaken for the noblest of motives. John Brown meant well. Now, I've likened John Brown to a first. Many of us in our life have meant well. However, the product of our life has not necessarily shown a grand impact upon the world. And so what I'm interested in doing as the body of Christ is moving from noble motives to noble behavior, where we actually do it we don't just think it, but we do it. And the work that we do actually changes the world in which we live. The noblest of motives. We're going to go back a couple thousand years here to Jerusalem. The date was Nisan 1433. Actually, we're very close to it. It's, it's a date typically known as Passover in the Jewish calendar. Now, the year being 33 is somewhat of a guess, okay? Because we don't know exactly what date it was, but we know it was somewhere around there, okay? So you have to allow a little fudge factor in the year on this, but I do know the date. I do know that it was Passover day and 2,000 years ago. We have, in a sense, the noblest of motives. We have what I'm going to call a Harper's Ferry. Now, you don't know much about Harper's Ferry maybe yet. I'll give you a little introduction to it. But there was a good intention, okay, to do a very noble thing. I mean, if, you're no, if your motive is to go out and set slaves free, you know what? You don't have to admit there's some good stuff there. I mean, look at, 
Like Corey Tenboom, what was she doing? She was rescuing Jews. And every one of us would say that was noble. And yet the difference between John uh, Brown and Corey Tenboom is the key in this message. There is a difference between them. And as a result, the same is true in our spiritual life. We want to be Corey Tenboom esque, not necessarily John Brown esque. So the noblest of motives. Mark 14. Peter said to him, speaking to Jesus, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. See, Jesus has just announced to his disciples that he is going to be taken and die. And Peter just cannot stand by and do nothing in this. Peter is a John Brown. Peter is moved with zeal and passion, even love, for his master. And he says, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he, Peter, spoke more vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. See, we're, we have a little Harper's Ferry that's being set up here. In other words, the noblest of motives, but God has to speak to this first, this John Brown-esque element in all of us, and say, I know you mean well, but you have to be proven weak. The first has to come to its end if you really want to do some, make some difference in this world. So that night, Peter fell asleep while on watch duty, presumptuously cut off a man's ear, and shamefully denied his beloved Lord three times. Isn't that the irony of a night in which he has declared he will die for someone? Where he actually rises up, maybe to a greater degree than he's ever done in his zeal. And that was the result. Probably the worst night of the guy's life is what followed his vehement, zealous desire to please his God. John Brown's story is fairly similar. The failure of Harper's Ferry. Harper, what does it feel like to have your name in this message? That's sort of, sort of fun, isn't it? Harper's Ferry is a uh, little adjoining spot with three states uh, in the east of our country, but it's technically in West Virginia. On October 16, 1859, John Brown led a group of 21 men in a raid on the military arsenal in Harper's Ferry. He easily overtook the arsenal. All that was there was a night watchman. And with, the we and with weaponry to spare because he'd brought his own weapons in, and then he had the arsenal. So he had all the weapons in that arsenal. He hoped to incite a revolt against, uh, amongst the slaves and to set a pattern throughout the South for undermining the economic infrastructure of the southern plantations. Here was his brilliant strategy. He's going to come in, and he's going to have all the weapons. Then he's going to get all the slaves to say, yeah, I'm with John Brown, and then he supplies them a weapon. So they all like turn against their slave masters, they all get armed, and then they form into a military formation, and they take down these plantation owners. And the plantation owners can't stop them. I mean, you've got armed slaves now. Now what happens to the economic structure of Virginia and West Virginia? It collapses because it has no slaves. And so this was John Brown's tactic. He says, and then, well, then we'll spread it south. And then we'll go to, into each state, and all the slaves will know what happened here, and then they'll say, I'm ready to join when you come here. And all the slave owners are going to have to make a decision. Either we're just going to give up our slaves and start you know, coming to our senses, or we're going to die in the process. John Brown, Amy, is a thinker. He's got a good strategy here. Uh, 
It just didn't work very well, any more than Peter's declaration. I will die for you tonight. What we need is action. Action! And so our first life will oftentimes crave the right thing. What we desire is good. However, as long as we try and do it out of a first strength, out of our first pockets, we will not be able to supply what is needed to win. Uh, John Brown's son goes out with a white flag at Harper's Ferry, and the uh, Southerners were not overly excited to, uh, to let this guy go free. So they shoot him. And so his son actually stumbles back into the armor, and he's lying on the floor, and this is what John Brown said to him. Uh, Oliver, his son, wanted uh, his dad to put him away, you know, just take, take him out of this pain. And uh, John Brown says, die like a man. Now, I have to admit, there's something romantic about it. Uh, it's, it's very noble sounding. Everything about John Brown is so close to being right. And yet, something about it is wrong. And that's the whole point. What Peter is saying to Jesus is right. But it's so wrong. He's missing how you stand that way. You see, John, you can't do this on your own. John Brown looks to himself and he says, I can bring liberation. You guys can't, aren't doing anything. I can bring liberation. No, you can't, John. The first cannot actually bring about the salvation. That same night, so this is Harper's Ferry. This is the same night where he's uh, taken over the little armory. John Brown lost two of his sons to gunshot wounds, succeeded in killing a former slave, failed to gain support from any local slaves to support his uprising, officially bungled the whole operation, was surrounded, captured, tried, sentenced, and died 47 laters on the gallows, charged with treason against the state of Virginia. Sort of a sad state uh, of affairs for the guy. Everything went wrong. I mean, his, the first guy that they kill in this whole uprising was an African-American freed slave. It's like... Uh, Guys, this isn't quite going right. The very people we came to rescue, the very people we're harming. I don't know if you've ever felt that in your spiritual life, too. It's like, why is it that the very thing I don't want to do, have you ever made a declaration, I will not do this, and then that's the very thing you do. That, and even sometimes it's the same night you declare it, I will die for you tonight, and then that very night you find yourself flailing. You see, God has to prove something to us. And that is this first life, though it means well, is ill-equipped and unable to bring about salvation in your life. The impotence of the first to save. So Jesus uh, accomplished something. Now we're going to say first and second. There's a lot of firsts and seconds throughout Scripture, as many of you know. You have Cain and you have Abel. Which offering pleased God? It was a second offering. Ishmael. And Isaac, which child was the promised child? Which one could stand before God? It was the second. It was Isaac. Saul, David, which is the one after God's own heart. And so you go through the entire Bible this way. Now you have Old Covenant and New Covenant. And so what we have is an Old Covenant. Is the Old Covenant bad? No. The Old Covenant is perfectly fine. Is John Brown's motives good? Sure. However, the Old can't save. The first covenant is not able to bring about salvation. The only thing it can show is that you do need a Savior. What John Brown proved is, boy, 
he sure blew it. I guess that's not the way to win the slaves. That's, that's what it showed in a simple way. So speaking of the first and the second, the old covenant unto the new in Hebrews, it says, but now he, speaking of Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry. Inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant. So now he, Jesus, has obtained a far better method for delivering slaves than John Brown. This is in essence what it's saying. It's just not talking about John Brown. But John Brown, though he means well, is unable to deliver one. All he did was kill one. That was basically all he accomplished in his whole mission. The guy gives up his life as a martyr and kills the very people he's trying to help. That wasn't very good. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. If John Brown's methods were sufficient, then there's no reason to bring the Union Army into it and to actually fight a battle over this. It would have been solved. But it was insufficient. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You see, this first, if we were to look at our individual lives, what we need is a second life. Jesus says you must be born again. You must put off your first life, your first way of doing things. Probably every single one of us in here has a default position for how we live life, how we do everything. There's a way when you get up, there's probably a certain direction your body even moves. Mine goes in a certain direction straight towards the bathroom, right? I, I don't do like three loops around the bed and do some push-ups. I actually go straight, which sounds really impressive, especially with Aaron Vogel standing here. He'd be like, really, you do that? Instead, I go straight to the bathroom, and it's like a pattern in my life. Once you've established a pattern so deep in your life, it's actually very strange to change it. And yet what needs to happen in our lives is there are certain patterns that need to be exposed, and we need to start turning towards the spirit instead of the flesh first time. When we waken, boom, we go straight to the spirit life instead of to the old patterns that we had. I used to have two printers in my office, and we had what was called an A-B switch. If I wanted to use uh, printer A, then I would turn the switch to A. And then if I wanted to use printer B, I would turn the, the, the switch to printer B. And so in a strange way, I got used to a certain way of doing things. And, you know, ironically, even after we uh, had a wireless printer, I still had this AB switch sitting there. I don't know how. In the, you get so used to it. It's like, why is that there? So someone came over to our house and asked that once. I was like, I don't know, but it's been there like five years. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess I could take that out. We have this extra stuff that lingers around. Have you ever had it where you switch printers and uh, I don't even know if it does this anymore. I, but I remember back in the day, you'd switch, you'd get a new printer, and your old printer would have a, your old computer would, your, your computer would have a default printer. And it would go straight to this default printer. You're like, what's, what's wrong? You'd print it seven times. It's like, what's going on? I just printed it. You'd go in, check the printer. It's like, how come nothing's there? And then finally, you know, some tech guy comes over and says, well, you have the wrong default. You're not even sending it to the right printer. How many of us do that? We've changed. We have a new printer, but we're still sending everything to our old life. And as a result, we're not reaping anything good. Paul refers to it as the more excellent way. So at the end of 
chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians, right before he gets to the pinnacle point of 1 Corinthians, which is on love. Remember, the very first words of, uh, of this are going to be about love. And so he's, he's going to show a better way or more excellent way to the church of Jesus Christ. This concept of a more excellent way is a great uh, Greek word, huperbole. And so if you've ever heard the word uh, hyperbole, this is where it comes from, except hyperbole tends to just simply mean exaggeration today in the English language. In other words, oh, if you're saying a hyperbole, you're just overstating something. When in actuality, the root idea here is a throwing beyond superiority, excellence, preeminence, beyond all measure. God's, Paul's not saying, I'm going to show you a very exaggerated way that you could never do. He's actually saying, this is the way and you have it available to you and it is so much superior to this first way. What John Brown did, he meant well, guys. I'm not going to question his motives. I'm going to question how he ended up playing out, what his behavior was. You see, he couldn't actually accomplish anything. So I'm not questioning his sincerity. It's just sincerity doesn't lead to salvation. Truth does. And this way, this second way, is so much more excellent, so hyperbole to it. And so the, the visual in the Greek is this idea of throwing uh, a javelin. And the javelin, say, say John Brown comes up and he throws a javelin. The old covenant comes up, throws a javelin. Your first life and your own attempts and your human strength throws a javelin. And it goes, and we can all look around and go, oh, that was a good throw. That was a good throw. You know, it went, you know, 50 feet and you're looking around and your button bursts and you're feeling all good about it. And then, and Paul says, hey guys, I'd like to show you a more excellent way. And this little diminutive guy named Paul, big nose, supposedly in, in history, he had a big nose, he was bald and he was short. And he goes, guys, I'd like to show you a more excellent way. So he like shoves me out of the way. And he goes, could, could you give me some space? And it goes 50 miles. And we're like looking at each other and everyone looks at me and, you know, I, I, was, I put my button back on. I uh, yeah, okay. You see, what Christ has accomplished for us and what he enables us to do in our life is so superior to anything our first life could ever accomplish. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So we have twos, first, second. In the New Testament, we begin to understand it as flesh and spirit. You see, when you function your first life in your Adam inheritance, you know, I have, a, I have certain gifts and talents that I inherited in my DNA. You try and use those gifts and talents that you inherited from Adam, and they can impress all the other Adams. They can. All the other descendants of Adam will be impressed. And in fact, you can go to the Olympics with those, and they'll create big crowds, and people will stand on their feet and cheer what you've inherited from Adam. But there is one that will not clap, and that is God Almighty. God is impressed with how you use that which you receive spiritually, which does not come inherently in the package of DNA. It comes by faith in Jesus Christ, and we receive a new creature, a new level of DNA that is so much superior 
to anything in this natural realm. It is inherited in Christ Jesus that we receive this, this greater degree of ability. And God says, now I'm impressed when you exercise that. That is what pleases God. What pleases God is the spirit being exercised, not the flesh. The flesh is weak. The spirit is mighty. Until John is imprisoned. So what we see is the John in the New Testament... This model of the first, who's the first? John the Baptist. Who's the second? Jesus. Was John a bad guy? No. But John symbolizes the law. That's what he symbolizes. He symbolizes that which is polished according to the law, but it cannot save. The, the, the people of Israel, the Jews, were not saved by John the Baptist. But John the Baptist had a singular job, and that was to lead them to the saving power of the second. Until John is imprisoned. So what you'll see is, now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. You know what all the scriptures prophesy of the Messiah? He's going to start his ministry in Galilee. He knows that. So what is Jesus waiting for? The ministry of Christ is waiting. The ministry of the Spirit of God is waiting for something. For the first to be imprisoned. Isn't that just an interesting thought? From that time, this is in the same context, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. When does the ministry of Jesus kick into gear? When John is finished. You done, John? You finished yet, John? When the first comes to the end of its ministry, when the first is proven to not be able to accomplish salvation then true salvation steps out. Do you remember when David showed up at the battle? Remember, he's the second. After Saul, the first, was thoroughly proven to be weak. And then God says, all right, let's deliver some bread and cheese. Let's get you to that battlefront. You see, the better man shows up when the first man has come to his finish line. When the first method is done, now the second can shine. The first must cease for the second to really work. There stands one among you, says the first, says John the Baptist, whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. You see, you can live your spiritual life out of your own pocket strength, out of your own Adam inheritance. And I'm going to tell you that you will fail. You will not be able to showcase the grandeur of the kingdom of heaven. There is one that comes after that first that is far superior. The first and even the most illustrious sense. John the Baptist may be the best example of a first, of what a first can become out of any first. I mean, he was a grand man, even according to Jesus. But he was unable to save. He was still not the Messiah. He was still under the just condemnation of the law, just as all of us are, and the only means of salvation he has is the same means we have, which is faith in that second. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Acts 19. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? 
Now, it is sort of awkward when it's called the Holy Ghost instead of just the Holy Spirit, because some of us are already weirded out with just Holy Spirit. So just to make it extra awkward, we'll use Holy Ghost. Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Now, he's in Ephesus, and he's asking a very simple question. Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? You believed in Jesus Christ. Are you still living like John the Baptist? You know, there's actually two baptisms. The baptism of John, one unto repentance, and there's also a baptism of the Spirit. You see, you can actually believe your actions to be wrong, repent of them, and even call out to God for forgiveness, and yet still not have entered into the power of the life lived which is where I would say John Brown functioned. He had the right thoughts, he had the right intentions, but he was still living in the baptism of John. So the answer is, and they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be a Holy Ghost. How could you not have ever heard about the Holy Spirit? How could you not know about the actual power to live this thing? And he said unto them, unto what then were you baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. The second. There is a greater one that does the work. You can do the believing over here. And you can attempt to live your Christian life out of your own muscle and your own DNA inheritance from Adam. And I'm telling you exactly what Paul would tell you. Put off that old man. Put on Christ. The second man, Jesus. The second covenant, grace. The power of the Spirit. See, grace, and by simple definition, if you heard me talking with my kids, I'd say, so what's grace? Grace isn't just a loving hug from God. It's the enabling power of God to do. That's what it is. How are you saved? You're saved by the enabling power of God to do it on the cross. He did it. You're saved by it. But you're also saved today from the temptation to lust by the enabling power of God to do it in and through you by his spirit. It's called grace. You are saved by grace, not just once 2,000 years ago by faith in Jesus Christ dying on a cross and rising again, but saved by believing in that second man today that he has given you everything you need for life and godliness. The second way, it's the way of love. It's a far superior way. It far exceeds when you throw that javelin. It goes so much further than anything John Brown could ever come up with. It makes Harper's Ferry look like a joke. The emancipation of all slaves. You see, the first one means well, but all you do is kill a slave. Boy, that backfired. But then the second delivers them all. You see, you have a first and a second. And it's the second that we want to recognize in our lives. The first one is noble in its motives. The second one is noble in its behavior. It does it. The second result it really works. The story of the rubber boots. I gave this story a few years ago, but uh, it was actually a made-up story, so, but it was partly true. So it was one of those funny stories that it was like a combination of real and uh, 
fiction, just to sort of make a point. My family goes to California, which is true, and we get there, and the first day, we already have our tickets to the uh, <clears throat> Magic Kingdom, and we're excited. I'm more excited than the kids uh, to, to get there. It just happens to be raining, and that's a big deal. Uh, in Southern California, it's not necessarily that shocking in January. Well, it has been shocking, uh, but we were... Uh, We'd just gotten there, and I didn't unpack my, my suitcase, okay? So we go straight to uh, the Magic Kingdom, and we're ready to enjoy ourselves. My problem is I didn't unpack my suitcase, and as a result, I didn't see that there were actually rubber boots in the suitcase. And so I had my leather shoes that have a whole bunch of holes in them. They were well-worn. A better way of saying it, well-loved. I loved these shoes. They just had some holes. Like if I ever put my foot up like this, you'd be like, ooh, because they had little holes that are worn through, but they were so comfortable. And so all on the trip, I had these things on. They're like my relaxed shoes, right? And so I went to Disneyland in my worn shoes. And guess what? My feet got soaked, frigid cold. I was absolutely miserable. And Leslie asked me, did you not look in your suitcase? Did you not see that you had rubber boots in there? I did not so much as know that there were rubber boots. <laughs> and so that's, that's the story that I was telling. Basically to say that you have been given something in the journey. You've been supplied with what you need for the kingdom of heaven. And yet some of us immediately arrive and we head off into doing the work of the kingdom of heaven in our old shoes, in our old power. Instead of recognizing that in the suitcase that we have been supplied is everything we need for life and godliness. It would help if we would unpack the suitcase and make sure we are fully armed and dangerous for this battle. Looking in the suitcase. You know what we have there? Every single thing we need. You know all these little, I want you to just think of one of the challenges you're facing right now. It could be a health impediment. It could be a... Uh, financial impediments. It could be a relational challenge. Every single thing you face, there is supply for it. Isn't that an amazingly encouraging thought to think that every single thing you could ever face, this side of heaven, you could be thrown into prison and tortured and have everything you need to triumph in it. Oh, you could be without food. There could be a natural disaster that strikes this country. And you could be like in a hole in the ground, you know, hiding from some radiation. And you'd have everything you need to be cheerful and to sing a song of praise. Now, some of you are like, prove it, Eric. Well, I mean, those are tough situations, I know. But guess what? It's true. That's what's in the suitcase. Many of us are running off to handle our crises and our trials, and we leave our suitcase behind. And yet, if we were to open it up and check the word of God and say, God, what have you given me for this? What? These rubber boots have been there the whole time? Uh-huh. The power of the Holy Spirit has been there for you the entire time. Because, just because you haven't functioned in it, haven't yielded to it, and haven't put it on, does not mean it wasn't given to you at the cross. Everything you need is there. So, speaking of Ephesians, which ironically, that was the church at Ephesus that that whole story was about. In whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. You put on the rubber boots, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. 
the way of God more perfectly. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. Now, we already know that this previously happened in Ephesus, right? Where Paul was saying, hey guys, uh, do you know about the Holy Spirit? Like, we never even heard of that. Now, Apollos shows up, and he's an eloquent man. He is a first. He knows the truth. He esteems the truth, but he needs something. Came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spoke and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them, took him unto them, and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And so what we oftentimes need is this exact thing. We need Aquila and Priscilla to take us to the side and instruct us in the way of God more perfectly, more full. Along with the believers in Ephesus, many of us still might say, we have not so much as heard whether there be any rubber boots in the suitcase. We have not so much as heard whether there be a Holy Ghost available to the life of the believer. We have not so much as heard whether there be victory over sin in the Christian walk. We have not so much as heard whether there be power to actually live out the triumphant Christian life. We have not so much as heard whether there be authority in the name of Jesus to drive out devils. We have not so much as heard whether there be power in the shed blood of Jesus to resist Satan and to cancel out the effect of his evil working. We have not so much as heard whether there be such a thing as a fortified Christian life. If you have never heard, then how could you know? So, so many of us in Christianity have been given partial understanding of what we have. And as a result, we are taking on Harper's Ferry and finding a weakness and a futility in our ability to change things. Change things in our own thought life, change things in our own relationships, change things in our own practical dimension of life. When in actuality, God wants to take us by the hand this morning and introduce us to the way of God more perfectly. To say there is a better way to live this. If you've never heard, then how could you know? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? You see, this is what we do in the body of Christ. We introduce people to the suitcase, not just to the Savior in the kingdom, but we say, now let's look at what that Savior has given you. This is called discipleship. This is what we do. We introduce that how we transition from first to second. Many of us in here have transitioned to the best we know into being dependent upon the Holy Spirit. But in every situation, I wish I could give a, a specific example for you personally, because that's one of the challenges of corporate communications, is you have to deal with generalities and not specifics. But you have challenges in your life right now. Something may have happened that enraged you. Something may have happened that offended you. Something may have happened that hurts you. Something may have happened that caused anxiety and fear. You see, those are your old reactions. They're the only reactions maybe you've ever known. But you do not need to go to the magic kingdom with holes in your shoes anymore. There was actually a better way to do this. And I just wish that we could all see it visually, what it means 
to actually throw this according to the Spirit as opposed to our own attempts. If we could see the futility of Harper's Ferry in front of us, and we could see John Brown sitting on the floor weeping as he leans and all the bullets are flying around him and he sees his two sons dead, and he realizes that nothing has come of this, that none of the slaves responded, what did I do wrong? That's the way many of us have felt in our spiritual life. Did we mean well? We did. The question isn't sincerity. It's truth. You see, I can be sincere that my shoes with holes in them will be fine. I'll make it just fine. Meanwhile, I'm miserable. And it's not working. And it's not fine. As I whisper to Leslie, maybe we could end early today. You see, you can only handle so much of that. And that's the way it is in the kingdom of heaven when you are living out of your own strength. You are taxing this dust, trying to make this dusty man do the work of the kingdom of heaven. It just doesn't work. But God has supplied everything you need for life and godliness. Paul makes it very simple. Put off those old patterns. So the next time, for those of you that are giving way to anxiety right now, it's just got you. You see, what the enemy wants to say is, you're mine. I I own you on that one. Anytime something like this comes up, you go to anxiety every single time. You just need to rise up in your soul and say, nope, I'm a believer. And I have everything I need to now respond with truth in these moments. God is in control of my life. He has seen this situation even before I arrived at it. I can't tell you how many times I've given myself this, this exact sermon as I'm walking early in the morning and I'm praying, God, I believe that just as you saw Abraham's need for provision, you see mine right now. And you know that I was going to be in this situation long before I did. So therefore, I trust that you have a ram in the thicket even before I see it. So therefore, since I know that you are faithful and I know that you see my need before even I do, I can rest right now with joy knowing that you will prove faithful. So, as a result, I can be full of joy in the present moment as opposed to fear. Do you truly believe that God is able to supply? And you could nod your head, and I'm saying, but do you really believe it? If you believe it, put your confidence in it. You see, any relational squabble you have, did you know that even if the enemy is the one inciting it, and the enemy is the one playing both parties in it. Did you know that any moment in time, you can repent of your misconduct in that relationship, and you can allow the Spirit of God to work through it? And you know what God promises? That God will turn even what the enemy means for evil into good. How does he do that? Well, he's God. And so as a result, at any juncture, anything you're facing, you have the avenue. You have the strength. You see, the Holy Spirit is looking to take every circumstance in your life and change it for his glory. He wants to, instead of giving frustration out of you to a circumstance in your life, to give love and patience and kindness and mercy. You have it. It's in your suitcase. So you need to deliberately choose to open it and take it and then exercise it. It actually comes back to us at a certain place. I like how Sandy says it. We have responsibility. So turn that word around a little. We have ability to respond. In other words, in every situation, we've been given the grace 
which means we have ability from God to respond properly. What if we don't do it? Well, he who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it, he who has the ability to do it, he who has the rubber boots in his suitcase and continues to wear the old ones, even while knowing that he has the rubber boots, sins. That is the mistake that we oftentimes make. I want us to all open up our suitcases and begin to allow God to show us what we have been given so that we can no longer produce Harper's Ferry, but that we can see the emancipation of the slaves. You have a burden? You have a desire to see God's work done on this earth? Well, it's not going to be done with John Brown's strength. Noble motives, but bad, bad end game. We have the possibility of doing this with the power of Jesus Christ. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.